with your love and your grace and your peace and your joy. We just ask for your breaker anointing to come and just <laughs> let your will be done and your kingdom come in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Wow, I, I'm like, I'm, I might need to go over to the side here. The sun is like, I might need sunglasses. It's going, let's see. <laughs> this is odd, but I'll do this. That'll help. Anyway, yeah, good to have you all here. Um, uh, it's been a couple weeks, but um, we, I started a new series on the kingdom of God. And I'm excited because, like I said, I've been uh, feeling to do this for a while, uh, just waiting on the Lord's time. And so I'm, I'm excited to be doing this now. If you weren't here, we have the messages um, up on the Facebook page, and we send them out every week on the Joyful Tidings, because uh, the last two times we really, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but we really are building a solid foundation to equip us to understand uh, the framework of the kingdom of God, because when Jesus steps on the scene in the New Testament, everybody understood what the kingdom of God was, and unfortunately, um, a lot of us there's a lot of misunderstanding around the kingdom of God, and for good reason, and we're going to be talking about some of that today, um, but, you know, I made the point that understanding the kingdom of God is absolutely crucial, absolutely crucial to understanding Jesus of Nazareth and to understanding, in fact, the whole entire New Testament, because the New Testament writers had this understanding of the kingdom of God um, that the way they wrote and the, the framework they worked from was from this perspective. And so that's why I've been taking time um, just building that foundation to try and give us just a little bit of a foundation to work from, to understand, oh, that's what he meant by the kingdom of God. Because, you know, I, the first time I talked about this, I gave you some of the statistics, how much Jesus actually talks about this. He's always talking about the kingdom of God. That was his main message and if you look at the summaries of the Gospels, whenever they summarize Jesus' ministry and teaching, they always do so in terms of the kingdom of God. We talked about that. When Jesus uh, sends out his disciples, you know, the 12, the 72, the only thing he told them to do is tell them the kingdom of God's at hand, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, right? Cleanse the lepers, freely receive, freely give. That's it. And so if we are to make disciples, understanding the kingdom of God is essential because how are we going to preach the kingdoms at hand if we don't have that understanding that the kingdom of God is? What is the kingdom of God, right? It's really important. So an essential part of a discipleship training is, first of all, preach the kingdom of God's at hand. Now, um, when I first talked about this, I had people raise hands. How many of you haven't heard a message on the kingdom of God? And there was quite a few. In other words, it's, it's, it's neglected a lot in the church. Not in, now, don't get me wrong, not in every church. But this message of the kingdom of God is, uh, for the most part, quite neglected, unfortunately, to our detriment. Because, like I said, if we're going to understand Jesus, if we're going to understand the New Testament, we need to understand what the kingdom of God means. What does it mean that the kingdom of God is at hand? Okay? Now, this affects everything. The kingdom of God is the framework from which we have to live from. Okay, so that's why I'm taking time building this foundation. It's not necessarily the most important topic of the New Testament, right? 
That's arguable. Like you could say grace, forgiveness, whatever. I'm talking about the most important framework. If you want to understand the teachings of Jesus and the New Testament, we need to have this framework because everything's to be understood in the framework that the kingdom of God is at hand. Forgiveness, love, all the teachings of Jesus are within this framework. Okay, and so we're taking some time here to develop this and then uh, in the weeks to come to develop it even more because today, God willing, if I get to what I want to, I want to just introduce a thought that's so critical um, for understanding the whole New Testament, and, but we're going to develop that later. I want to, uh, we're still developing, if you remember, if you were here a few weeks ago, d- finished talking about John the Baptist, okay? So what I want to do today is, for the sake of those of you who weren't here, because there's quite a few of you, and also it's been a couple weeks, I'm just going to give a little bit of a summary and then move on uh, from what we did last time. But the first slide here, I just made these points already, that understanding the kingdom of God is absolutely crucial for understanding the teaching and ministry of Jesus. And all the evidence in the Gospels lead us to the same conclusion, that whatever else Jesus Christ was about, he was about the kingdom of God. Okay, And because that's true, it's imperative for us to understand what it means. Okay, and so last time I talked, we asked the question, what is the kingdom of God? And the point of all this is to define what the kingdom of God is. Now, if you weren't here last time, or if you were, just a reminder, last time we talked about realm versus reign. And that's a really important distinction because there's two problems, I would say, why the kingdom of God gets neglected. Two issues. And and we've been focusing on the first issue. Um, The first problem is that there's often a misunderstanding of what the term kingdom means. In, in English, we tend to think of kingdom as a geographical realm, right? Like the kingdom of the Netherlands is a kingdom. It's a place. Okay, but when Jesus talks about the kingdom, he does so in terms of time. The time when God rules. And that is really important. He's not talking about a geographical space, He's talking about a period of time, a time when God rules sovereignly over the affairs of mankind. So what we built from is this. Now, I told you, if you look at, and I quoted them in the first slide, all of the uh, synoptic gospels, when they summarize the teachings of Jesus, they do so in terms of the kingdom of God. And we've been really building off of this summary that Mark gives. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, It says, now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. So last time we we spent, or last couple times, really developing the, the point that the first clause in this scripture, the time is fulfilled. What does that mean? Right? The point is, if there's fulfillment, there was promises that that based off of, right? If you have a, a word about fulfillment, that means that God's promised something that's currently being fulfilled. Okay? Also, like I, I kind of alluded to this already, the kingdom of God doesn't mean what we'd ordinarily think. It's not a geographical location, right? 
all the evidence leads us to this conclusion that it has to do with the time of God's rule, the rule of God, his reign, and the time when God exercises his rule in the affairs of mankind. And that's really important. And I gave you this example in case last time, but I'll give it again because I think it's helpful to give you the distinction. Okay? So just listen to this. During the kingdom of George III, the American colonies revolted against the kingdom of England. During the kingdom, what could you replace the first kingdom with? During the kingdom of George III, during the, what? Reign. Exactly. You see, in English, it can mean both. It can mean a period of time during a reign of someone's kingdom, whereas, right, there was an England before George III, before and after, but there's only one period of time when George III, you could say, during his kingdom. It's the same in Hebrew. It's the same in Greek. Kingdom can mean a geographical location or a period of time. In this case, Jesus is referring to a period of time, the time of God's reign, okay? And that is so important, and that's where some confusion comes into play. We also talked about fulfillment, I already alluded to this, but we spent time showing how this idea of the kingdom of God is based off of Jewish messianic expectations. Are there hope for the end? That fancy pants word eschatology. The eschaton simply means the end. So whenever you hear eschatology, we're just simply taught referring to the time of the end. And in order to understand what John the Baptist and what Jesus were talking about, we have to have a little bit of a grid of what was the Jewish end-time expectations of the Messiah coming, the kingdom of God. So I gave an overview a little bit in the last two times of the Old Testament hope. And we got to the point when John the Baptist comes on the scene to start declaring, now's the time, repent, the kingdom of God is near. Okay? So... What I'm just going to do today, oh, and I have this, um, just for the sake of those who weren't here last time, if you want, you can download the, the sermon and the links, because what I'm going to simply do today is give like a maybe five minute or whatever overview, just a brief, quick overview. So if you weren't here, you might be like, what are you talking about? If you listen to the last message or two, you'll, you'll understand but just to refresh our memories and to at least give us a little bit of a grid for what I'm talking about today, I thought it'd be beneficial to give a bit of a summary for review, because what happens during the, not only the Old Testament, but during the intertestamental period, the language, the language that everybody understood, the grid that everybody had for the kingdom of God developed. And so when Jesus and John the Baptist are on the scene, they have that as like a given, right? Everyone knows what it means that the kingdom of God's at hand. But if you think about it, in the Old Testament, they don't really, there isn't, they don't mention the kingdom of God, really. You could argue maybe in Daniel alludes to it. So how is it that from the time of Malachi, there's this 400-year period before John the Baptist where a whole bunch of stuff happens. How is it that they have this grid Right, This understanding that everybody's on the same page, what the kingdom of God means. And so if you want more on that, I do that you can get that link. So I'm just going to do this brief, quick summary of what we talked about last time, just to get us up to speed with where we're at today. 
So we talked last time, the last couple times about the Old Testament, because this idea of the kingdom of God coming is really based off of the Old Testament idea that God is going to come again and rule sovereign over the people of Israel. I mean, they had that hope for a long time, but this thing really developed after King David. And we talked about how after Israel went into decline, king after king went into sin, and there in hundreds of years of civil war, this hope developed that God would restore the fortunes of David and put a, a messianic king back on the throne within history that would rule and reign in righteousness like David did. Okay? So they thought that this was going to happen in a historical sense. They used the term in the latter days. You guys probably recognize that, right? In the latter days, God's going to restore this messianic king, David, on the throne, and he's going to rule in righteousness because David's reign and his rule became idealized, right? And so you see this. I mentioned Psalm 72, Psalm 2, um, all over the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, that God was going to do something. But the point is, they, they thought he was going to do something within history, okay? And that changes. Now, in the prophets, the prophets came along and took up this future hope, and they gave it a name, calling it the day of the Lord. You guys probably recognize that term, right? So this futuristic hope that God was going to restore the fortunes of David now was given this name. Now, in the, the prophets, they also took this, and they, uh, sorry, I'm mumbling here. They basically redefined this in a sense, saying this is going to be mostly a day of judgment. So if you look at the prophets, about 95% of the prophetic oracles are about judgment. Okay, Judgment's coming, judgment's coming because of the three great sins, which is idolatry, sexual morality, and oppression of the poor, over and over again. Because Israel, you as the people of God, are so far off my will, and you're not acting like it, judgment's coming. You just read Jeremiah, right, for instance. Now, I'm just trying to figure out how much to go into here. But because I already said all this in the past. But the point is, they were expecting this judgment to happen. Then there's a whole bunch of promises about salvation, restoration, and redemption following the judgment. Okay, so this future hope, the day of the Lord, justice and salvation and righteousness, that was the expectation. Okay, so those are the key terms that they use to describe it. Judgment, salvation, Righteousness and justice. So this is going to be a time in the future when God would have his day and exercise his rule over all the earth. Now, without going into all the detail I went last time, I'm going to just skip to the intertestamental period because this time, this becomes really important. And some major changes happen during this time that is key to understanding the kingdom of God. Okay? So what's really important is between, when I say intertestamental period, I'm talking about the time between Malachi and John the Baptist. There's about 430 years there where there's no, um, nothing in the Bible. I mean, in the Protestant Bible. Because it became known as the time of the quenched spirit. Okay, so what Israel believed is the spirit left. In fact, you can see this in Ezekiel chapter 10. In Ezekiel's vision where the, the glory departs from the temple after it's destroyed. Okay? 
the Holy Spirit was gone, and according to their beliefs. And, they, and in Zechariah 13, in fact, you can see there's no prophets anymore. Because, right, no Holy Spirit, no prophets. So therefore, no one speaks prophetically anymore. That's why there's no books in the Bible in those times. Because they didn't think anyone spoke prophetically. So it became known as the time of the quenched spirit. And that becomes really important, and you'll see why. So, I already said, some major adjustments take place. And Jesus and the New Testament people are heirs, the writers and everything. So what happened, the major adjustments, many people gave up on God doing something within history, with, called it the latter days, to God bringing their hope to fulfillment at the end of history. Okay? That is to bring an end to history and usher in an entirely new era, the day of the Lord. So they no longer thought this was going to happen in a historical sense. God's going to come and bring a cataclysmic boom end to history, and then it's going to be awesome. Okay? And all those prophetic promises that were in Isaiah and Jeremiah about the new covenant uh, were going to be fulfilled at the end. Okay? And God was going to have his day. Right, every, The great reversal is going to happen. The blind were going to see, right? Uh, joy for uh, heaviness. All this stuff is going to happen. It's going to be amazing. The lion and the lamb laying down together. It's all going to happen at the end of time. The eschaton. Okay? Now, this... Therefore, the day of the Lord became a thoroughly eschatological concept, the time of the end. And it resulted, and this is important because, like I said, Jesus and the New Testament writers use this language and have this understanding as a framework for everything they say. The result is a two-age worldview. And this is especially from, we talked about the apocalyptic literature. Talked last time, remember, because it was the time of the quenched spirit, and no prophets spoke in the land. We talked about how in Jeremiah 13 it said, if someone prophesies during that time, their parents have to stab them because there's no prophetic voice anymore. So the only choice they had was to take the name of someone from antiquity who had the spirit and write under their name. That's why we, we have all this apocalyptic literature like the book of Enoch, the book of Moses, because during this period of time of the quenched spirit, they had no choice other than to write in someone else's name. So these people, and this is important because the apocalyptic literature developed all of these ideas that we now have. Okay, and, and that literature is really influential from about 200 B.C. to 200 A.D. in the church. You read the book of Revelation, that's a great picture of what the apocalyptic literature looked like. Okay, like symbolism, fantastic imagery. Okay, so the apocalyptic literature, they divided this into two ages called this age, the age we're living in, they thought, which they also called Satan's age. Okay, it's because there's evil, there's oppression, there's demonic, there's no spirit, there's sickness, right? Sin's rampant. And so this is Satan's age. And then God was going to come and bring an end to this evil age. Then there would be the age to come. And that became known as the kingdom of God. Okay, the age to come. And you still hear Jesus even says that, right? We talked about that in Matthew 12. He says, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you won't be forgiven in this age or the age to come, right? It's, and Paul uses this language all over the place. So the point is, this idea that developed in the apocalyptic literature is really important. And in fact, the book of Jude quotes some of these apocalyptic literature. He quotes from the book of Enoch, and he quotes from the book of, uh, I think, First Moses, that's why that book's really controversial. But the point is, 
the New Testament writers had all of this. And John the Baptist and Jesus. So when they said the kingdom of God is here, they all knew, oh my goodness, I know what that means. The end is here. God's bringing an end and he's ushering his new age. The age of the kingdom. Now this is why, I'm going to move here now that the sun moved a little bit. I don't think it'll blind me anymore. (laughs) Because it was the time, remember, it was the time of the quenched spirit one of the things that happened in the Old Testament is this expectation that the Holy Spirit was going to come back. And in fact, the coming of the Spirit was the one thing that was going to mark the division of the ages. That was the one thing they were looking for. There's, we'll talk about this later, actually two things, that and the resurrection. But the one thing they were like, this is going to mark this age, the difference from this age and the age to come is the Spirit's coming back. Okay? So they're all looking for the Spirit to come back. So you read, we talked about Ezekiel, right? Ezekiel 36, when he talks about the new covenant, he says, I'm going to put my Spirit in your hearts, and your, my Spirit's going to inspire you to do my law. Okay? And then right after Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones, he says, my Spirit's going to raise them up. So it's all about the Holy Spirit coming back. And they're all looking for this. Joel chapter 2. We talked about this last time. 228 to 32, right? In the latter days, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters are going to prophesy. Young men dream, or have visions. Old men dream dreams, right? The point is, because the prophets left, there's no more prophets because the spirit left, he, they, they put this Joel prophecy totally, they made a totally eschatological meaning. That is going to happen when the day of the Lord comes. Because the Spirit's coming back upon all flesh, and the prophets are coming back. In fact, it's not only going to be just a couple prophets here and there. Everybody's going to be a prophet. All the way from the old men to the slave girls. Everyone's going to prophesy, right? The point is, The prophets are coming back. The Spirit, capital S, Spirit of Prophecy, is coming back when the day of the Lord happens. Okay. So just to give you sort of a graphical illustration. (laughs) This age is Satan's age. Okay? Because there's evil. There's injustice everywhere. There's oppression. There's, especially, they saw the demonic and and sickness as evidence. This is Satan's age. They saw demonic oppression and possession and sickness. And that's why Jesus, as evidence that the kingdom's here, what did he do? Cast out demons, heal the sick. Because God's reign is here. And overcoming, overthrowing Satan's reign. That's, that evidence is really important because they understood those things as markers that this is an evil age where Satan reigns. Then the end's going to come. And the, then the age to come. Remember, and that this is when the language of the kingdom of God developed. In fact, a better translation to kingdom of God, it could very well be translated the time of God's rule. Okay, the Greek word means that. We use kingdom of God, but the, just remember that, the time of God's rule. So the age to come, the time of God's rule, a great reversal is going to happen. We're going to talk about that later, right? The good news preached to the poor, uh, all this stuff that's upside down because Satan's age is going to be turned right side up. The overthrow of Satan, usually dramatic and climactic, right? You look at the book of Revelation, that's a good picture of what they were expecting to happen. 
Usually messianic, usually, not always, but they thought a powerful Messiah was going to come. Talking about the apocalyptic literature now. And, the, and again, this is evidence above everything else uh, uh, by the Holy Spirit coming. Okay, so just to summarize, the coming age is going to be ushered in by a supernatural intervention, usually accompanied by a powerful Messiah who would come in triumph, restore the nation to its former glory, bring the Spirit, deliver the oppressed, and this is called the time of God's rule, the kingdom of God it became known as. Okay, and also just the ideas uh, around the Messiah became developed during this time as well. Okay, so after the Maccabean period, and this is around 166 B.C., this apocalyptic thing really intensified. You remember, they're waiting for like 400 years expecting the Messiah to come and finally that God's kingdom would come, usher in the new age, Satan's age is done with, right? So they're just waiting, kind of like we are with the second coming of Christ, like just waiting. Okay, when's it going to happen? It's got to be any day now, right? God's going to come. So they're just really, by the time John the Baptist comes on the scene, this thing really intensified and it's like fever pitch. It's like any day now this is going to happen. The kingdom of God's going to come. Now enter John the Baptist, it's during this time, in this, in this context of this messianic expectation and fervor that John the Baptist came proclaiming the eschatological nearness of God's times. Imagine that. 400 years, finally this guy comes on the scene, right? Super strange clothing, strange diet, comes on the scene, and people go out to see him. Like, he doesn't go around in towns talking. He's, he's out at the river in the wilderness, and all these people are coming out, and his main message is repent. Why? The kingdom of God is near. Get right with God, because God's this, this, he's going to end time, end history, end this demonic age, and usher in the brand new age, and you need to be right with God. Okay? So the whole point of John the Baptist was telling, was judgment. His message was, number one, pretty much all judgment. Repent because God's judgment is coming, and you got to get right with God, okay? Get baptized is a symbol that you need to be right with God. It's a symbol of repentance, okay? So his message is totally eschatological, and all three of the Synoptic Gospels put his entire ministry in terms of fulfillment. Remember, we talked about that. The fulfillment of all these promises. So you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke. What does it say about John the Baptist? It quotes Isaiah 43 to 5, right? One coming in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord. Make the level mountain, the mountain level in the right path straight. So he comes in. Now I have Luke 3, 118 here, if you want to read it all. But verses 4 to 6, it's a direct citation from Isaiah 43 to 5. Prepare the way of the Lord. Verse 7, who warned you to flee you from what? The coming wrath. Because remember, the idea in the Old Testament was the day of the Lord is first of all judgment. Okay? First of all judgment followed by salvation. So he's like, watch out. The judgment's coming. The trees, the axe is at the root of the trees. Get right with God. Repent. Okay? And that was his whole message. Judgment is coming. Be right with God. So people submitted to his baptism as an indication of them saying, you're right, I'm wrong, I'm a sinner, I am not ready for God's rule and reign of righteousness, so I am going to submit to your baptism as a symbol that I repent and I'm going to be right with God. Because those who were sinning wouldn't 
go into the age to come, like the good part of it. Okay, so that's his message. We're right at the brink. Get ready for the coming age that God is about to usher in. Repent, prepare yourselves in righteousness by submitting to baptism for the coming kingdom of righteousness at hand. And all this is intended to prepare them for the great final eschatological event. Does that make sense? Did you see how everybody had that understanding? So when he came, everybody knew what he was talking about. And they're like, oh my goodness, the kingdom of God is right any minute now. I got to get right with God. Now, what I wanted to remind us of, and I already talked about this, but the great sign of the age to come in the Messiah's return was the return of the prophetic spirit, capital S, because it was the time of the quenched spirit, right? So the spirit apparently left the land, and they're like waiting. They're like, okay, hey, the demarcation that the age to come is really here is the spirit's coming back, and there's going to be prophets again. So they see John the Baptist. They're like, oh my goodness, this guy's prophesying. He's a prophet. Is he, gonna, is he the coming Messiah? Right? And this is why they're so excited about John the Baptist. They're all going out to see him because they're like, oh my goodness, this might be the, the, the Messiah, the coming one that we're waiting for. Because he spoke in the return of the prophetic spirit. And you can see this. Look at Luke 13, 15. The people were waiting expectingly, right? Everyone's expecting that any day now the kingdom of God is coming back. So they're all waiting. And then John comes and it says all of them were wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah, because he's a prophet, and there's no prophets for 400 years, right? So they're like, is this the Messiah? Then John answers them, okay? He's like, I baptize you with water, right, as a symbol. This isn't the real thing, so to speak. One more powerful than I is going to come whose straps I'm, of, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with what? A Holy Spirit and fire, because remember, it's the Holy Spirit that's going to be the demarcation that the age to come has come. And the Messiah is going to be the ultimate man of the Spirit. So he's like, hey, I'm not it. One more. Now, the guy who is it, he's in our midst, right? But this is how you're going to know. He's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. That's why. <laughs> Talked a little bit about this last time. What happened on the day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit came, Right? And we talked about how significant that was. What did they do? Peter comes up, preaches. This isn't, they're not drunk like you think. This is fulfilling the prophecy of Joel. And then he quotes per, word for word, Joel 2, 28 to 32. I, in the last days, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all flesh, right? He's like, this is fulfilling that. So in other words, that totally revolutionized where they, from that point on, the church understood themselves as living in the last days, Forever, because that was the sign to them that this is the age to come. That's the outpouring of the Spirit. That's why the baptism of the Holy Spirit is so important. Okay. Now, the language Holy Spirit fires, remember, again, this language, judgment and salvation. That's what it's going to look like when the day of the Lord comes. And the, yeah, I already said all this, but essentially, John the Baptist is saying, you're, you're going to recognize a Messiah because he's going to usher in the end as evidenced by the coming of the Spirit. He's going to baptize you in spirit, pour out his spirit on all, and evidence that the end has come. Okay. Now enter Jesus of Nazareth. Because <laughs> imagine this. I mean, it's electric. People are waiting, expecting, oh my goodness, 400 years of quenched spirit and the day of the Lord's any minute. We got this uh, a crazy prophet guy telling us this. We got to get right with God. And he says the Messiah is in our midst. Oh my goodness, 
Right? Imagine that. Any day now. So then Jesus comes from Galilee, and he was baptized by John. Okay? Now, this, this is such an important, in fact, you read every single one of the Gospels, John included, right? We're talking Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the defining moment in Jesus' life when he gets baptized by John. Every single Gospel shows this. And I'm going I'm to go into detail because this is so important. Why was it Jesus did no ministry before he was baptized, but after, when he got baptized, something essential happened that equipped him for his messianic destiny, okay? So, two things that I'm going to elaborate on, the coming of the Holy Spirit and the voice from heaven. Those two things are so important when we're talking about the kingdom of God and the Messiah. Now, this is, this, if you're not aware, this is just from Mark 1, 9 through 11. I'm going to just read from this because it talks about this, this incident. So at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. So the first thing I want to talk about, and I've been alluding to this all along already, but I want to, the significance of the spirit coming. This is so important, which is why every single one of the Gospels have this as a critical point in Jesus' life. So why is the coming of the Spirit so important? Because it's the Spirit coming upon Jesus that authenticated him as the Messiah, number one, and evidenced the coming of the new age, the kingdom of God. It was after this that he started preaching the kingdom of God. Why? Because the kingdom of God came when the Spirit came upon him. This is what, and I already said this, why all the Gospels highlight this event as the absolute turning point in Jesus' life. So according to Jewish messianic hopes, the messianic king was going to be an, an anointed deliverer, anointed by the Spirit to deliver the people. Now, I'm just going to give you a few scriptures that show this, okay? Isaiah 11, 1 through 4. This is a messianic prophecy, a shoot's going to come up from the stump of Jesse, that's David's dad, from whose roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and the spirit of understanding. The spirit of counsel and the spirit of might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The sevenfold spirit of God. And he'll delight in the fear of the Lord. Now look at this, verse 4. But with righteousness, remember the two things that are going to mark the age to come, righteousness and justice, because they're the foundation of his throne. But with righteousness, he'll judge the needy. And with justice, he'll give decisions for the poor of the earth. Isaiah 42.1. Here's my chosen servant who I uphold, my chosen one whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he'll bring justice to the nations. And I'm going to talk about that verse a little more later. But that's Isaiah 42.1. Isaiah 61.1. Just the first verse. I mean, it goes on. I'm just giving you one verse each. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He set, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, the great reversal. So 
Why was the coming of the Spirit so important? Above all else, it was the eschatological gift of the Spirit being given to the Messiah. That's, that's when it happened. That's when history changed forever. That was the mark, demarcation point of history. The Messiah is here now. The Holy Spirit's on him. And now he's going to fulfill his messianic destiny. Okay? So this marked Jesus off for his destiny and equipped him for his messianic task. It was the Holy Spirit that equipped him. Now, you just, all throughout the Gospels, it suggests this. But one scripture I quote a lot because it's such a good summary of the entire uh, ministry and teaching of Jesus, Acts 10.38, where it says that Jesus of Nazareth went about doing good. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit and power, doing good and healing the sick because God was with him, attributing his ministry to the Holy Spirit being upon him. Okay, so because Jesus was the unique bearer of the Spirit, this was the evidence that the age of the Spirit was dawning, that the new age was coming, the kingdom of God. Okay? Now, I want to just show you this from Luke. Remember we talked about how the Gospels summarize the ministry of Jesus in terms of the kingdom of God. What's interesting is after he was baptized, it says the Holy Spirit led him to the desert, and we know that. He was tempted by the devil. But then after, and that's a whole other thing we could talk about, but after that, it's, this is the very first, first verse after the, the desert, 40 days. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went all throughout the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, his hometown. And his, as his custom was, he went into the synagogue. On the Sabbath, they stood up to read. And as he, handed, he, he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And here we go. We just read this, didn't we? Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. This is his announcement. Because he's anointed me to what? Proclaim the good news to the poor. Remember, the good news of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The kingdom of God is at hand, in other words. Right, that, that what's interesting about Luke is he takes that summary, summary we had in Mark and puts it in narrative format. This gives us some fuller picture of what Jesus' message looked like. Going from synagogue to synagogue. Hey, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Then, then look what he says. He reads that and he says, Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fast on him. He began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The time, remember, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Why? Because the spirit of the Lord is on me to do all this stuff that's going to happen when the kingdom of God is here. So this is clearly a messianic text, scripture, that has to do with the great coming day of the Lord, which is going to be evidenced by the spirit of God upon the Messiah and the great reversal. And this suggests that Isaiah 61 has been fulfilled in your hearing. This points to the evidence that the day of the Lord has come, and this becomes really important. We're going to talk about this at the end today. Why all of this, I, this language of fulfillment is so important for our understanding. Like I said, even understanding Christian ethics, what the point of what, like, where we are at in history, what are we supposed to do with that, 
The reason I'm spending so much time on this is because it's so important for our understanding as even Christians. What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to live? Everything's in light of the fact that the kingdom of God is here. Okay? Everything. That changes everything. Now, the second significant thing that was super important when Jesus got baptized is the voice from heaven. Okay? So the voice, along with the descent of the Spirit, constitutes his messianic calling. And I'm going to elaborate on this. This is really interesting. So the voice from heaven declared his messianic destiny and reaffirmed for him who he was and what he was all about. So this is just to remind you, Mark 1.11. And a voice came from heaven, you're my son. Three things. Whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. Now, the scriptures don't give us much background about Jesus, but Luke does. He gives a story when Jesus was 12. He was already in the synagogues with the teachers of the law, and they were amazed by his wisdom because he knew the scriptures so well. You remember that? He's like a genius child. So, of course, God's going to speak to Jesus from the Old Testament because Jesus knew the scriptures so well about his destiny. So I'm going to just show you where these three things come from because it's really interesting. These three things are the foundation of what Jesus was all about. The first one, you are my son, this language is taken directly from Psalm 2-7. Remember Psalm 2 is, the, is like one of the key messianic psalms. And I just have this here. I will proclaim the Lord's decree, he said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Right? Directly from Psalm 2-7. So the Messiah was going to be called God's son just as David had been called in antiquity. So this language reflects the fact that the Messiah is going to be God's triumphant king, because that's what that psalm is all about, who's going to rule the nations with the iron rod. So it was an allusion, direct quote from that psalm. Whom I love, now this is language taken directly from Genesis 22 too. Okay? So this is Genesis 22 too. You'll recognize the story probably. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. He's talking to Abraham. And go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain. I'll show you. How many of you know that story? Totally a prophetic picture of Jesus. The promised son coming that Abraham waited 25 years for, right? He's almost 100 25 years, son of promise comes, and God speaks to him one day, take the son in whom you love and sacrifice him, right? Jesus knew exactly that this was from that scripture. And third, in whom I well please. You're going to recognize this from Isaiah 42.1 that we just quoted. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight, in other words, in whom I'm pleased or take pleasure. I will put my spirit on him, and he'll bring justice to the nations. Okay. The significance of this scripture, Isaiah 42.1, this is the first of the four songs in, from Isaiah 42 to 53 that we know as the servant songs. You read Isaiah 42 through 53, there's this mysterious guy, figure known as the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord, who's going to suffer on behalf of the people of Israel. Okay? So the picture finally culminates in Isaiah 53, where he suffers on behalf of the sins. How many know Isaiah 53? We quote it all the time. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, right? He took up on our, our infirmities, he, uh, our sins. We're, you know, I, I can't quote it. But 
But the part I can quote is, by his stripes we are healed, because that's part of the atonement, right? That, and then it talks about how he was bruised for our transgressions, our sins were put upon him. You guys know it. Isaiah 53, it's quoted a lot in the New Testament because that was a suffering servant song. So all so in this one sentence that's quoted, alluded to three scriptures, the voice affirmed two major things. First of all, his unique relationship to the father as his son. Okay. And secondly, his messianic destiny as a suffering servant king. Okay, so the combination of words from Genesis 22-2 and Isaiah 42-1 indicate that Jesus' destiny ahead is marked off by sacrifice and suffering. You guys got that? So this was totally, the significance of the Spirit coming upon him in the voice was totally constituting his call as the Messiah. And this is the key to understanding his ministry. Okay, so including, and this is why I'm talking about this, his own radical message of the kingdom of God, because that is totally understood in the context of, of these things I just talked about. The kingdom of God is at hand. What's Jesus' life and ministry going to look like? Set forth already for hundreds of years, about, in fact, thousands of years, of what the Messiah's ministry is going to look like. So his messianic call, at his baptism, Jesus is signaled by the Father as a son who's a kingly Messiah who's going to be the suffering servant of the Lord. All of this is fulfilled in that one sentence. The coming of the Holy Spirit announced for him and equipped him for the ministry that God had called him to do, which is what? To set this in motion. To get the rule of God going. The kingdom of God's going is at hand. Okay? All of this was to set in motion, to get them aside, to set the kingdom of God in motion. Okay, so, Jesus' message. Now, we talked about this two times ago when I spoke, so I'm not going to spend too much time on this. Essentially, speaking about how important Jesus, the kingdom of God was in Jesus' entire life and ministry. Right? And we talked about how the gospel summarized, and we talked about it earlier today, in fact, how when he discipled people, that was their message. Everything Jesus, if he was about anything, is about the kingdom of God. All, almost all of his parables are about the kingdom of God. He speaks about it in, you know, apocalyptic, in parables, and beatitudes. Everything's about the kingdom of God in Jesus' life. So it's important to understand that message. And now we have a little bit of a foundation and grid for it. But one thing I do want to say is that after the testing in the wilderness, right, he came to the synagogues of Galilee, went around announcing this radically different message from John. And this is important. Remember we talked about how John's message was announcing the coming wrath of God, the judgment of God. His message was singularly a message of judgment. Jesus came around and preaches a totally different message. His message is believe the good news of the kingdom of God. Right? John's message was believe the bad news of the kingdom of God. Jesus is like, actually, no, the kingdom of God coming is good news. <laughs> this is good news. It totally reinterprets people's understanding of what the kingdom of God is going to look like. And that shows, right, he goes around saying, believe the good news of the kingdom of God. Believe, repent, believe. Jesus understood the coming of the kingdom is good news, and that's important for us to understand. It wasn't the bad news they were expecting. Now, what is the good news? And this is what we've been talking about the past three times up until now, because it's so important. The good news is, first of all, the time is fulfilled. Okay? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. And everything that Jesus is and did and said 
including his works, talking about healing the sick, casting out demons, all of this is to be understood in the fact that the time is fulfilled, okay? And this is a proclamation that their hopes and expectations are coming in the realization in his life and ministry. All these hundreds of years, they're hoping and waiting for the kingdom of God, and his message is, hey, everyone, that's fulfilled in me, in my life and ministry. Okay, so the time is fulfilled, so, I already said this, but up until now, we focused on the first clause. Remember I gave you Mark's summary from Mark 1.15? The time is fulfilled, fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. We've been focusing, believe it or not, up until now, really, on the fact that the kingdom of the time is fulfilled. And that's really important to understand what he's talking about. The time is now, according to Jesus. Okay, so all of the scriptures and texts on fulfillment, we're going to talk about this more in the future because it's so important, suggests that for Jesus himself, the kingdom of God was a present reality in his own ministry, and that's super important for us today to know that. Okay, so for Jesus himself, he understood the kingdom of God is now. Okay, it's happening. All these promises that you were expecting to happen are happening now. Now, the biggest difficulty is with the second clause in Mark's summary. The kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, and I'm going to elaborate on this just a tad and finish because I'm setting us up for what we're, where we're going with this because understanding this is so important for understanding Jesus' teaching and the whole New Testament. Okay, so remember we started off, what's the kingdom of God? Trying to answer this because like I said, the kingdom of God is so misunderstood. The fact is a lot of people just give up on it because they're like, I don't even know what this, what this is, so they don't even talk about it, which the fruit of it is a lot of people in churches don't even talk about it, and that's Jesus' number one message, right, in terms of frequency and how much he talks about it. So our problems stem from two things. The first we talked about, there's often a misunderstanding of the term kingdom, realm versus reign. We talked about this earlier and last time. Okay, it's the time of his reign. It's not a realm, a geographical location. The second problem is what's terribly confusing to most people, with good reason. In fact, this second problem is what makes people probably give up all entirely on Jesus in the kingdom and even trying to understand it. Jesus speaks about the kingdom in two different ways, okay? He speaks about it ambiguously. On the one hand, Jesus speaks about the kingdom as a future event, but just as surely, he speaks about the kingdom as a present reality. Okay? That seems contradictory. But we're going we're gonna to figure that one out. Now, just to give you one example, I'm going to talk about this way more next time I speak, because it's so important. There's a whole bunch of scriptures that make it clear for Jesus that the kingdom of God was a future event. Here's just one of them. There's tons of them. Not literally tons, by the way, but a lot of them. Luke 22, 15, 16, he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This is before he went to the cross. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Wait a minute, Jesus, I thought the time was already fulfilled. <laughs> what do you mean it's going to find fulfillment sometime in the future when the kingdom of God comes, right? That's just one example. But just as importantly and equally clear for Jesus himself, the kingdom of God was in fact a present reality, and we've been talking about this for the last three times. The kingdom of God is, is at hand means the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here now, present. 
And that was Jesus' entire message, right? We talked about Luke 4, uh, Luke 4 where he quotes Isaiah 61. He says, this is fulfilled in your hearing. It's here. Here's another example, just one. Matthew 12, 28. But if the Spirit of God, or if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you now. Not future now. It's here. Okay, so Jesus says the great future event is already present in our midst. So how do you reconcile? And this is, like I said, where, where probably almost all the problems lay. In this future and present, what is it? Is it future or is it present, right? And Jesus and all the New Testament writers talk about it as both, okay? How can something be both present and future at the same time? I'm telling you, this is going to be a key not only to understanding the whole New Testament in terms of the kingdom and where we are and how we're supposed to live as God's eschatological people now. It is the key to understanding life in the Spirit, how to walk as New Covenant believers, holding truth and tension. And that's why I'm so excited about this, because this is going to be a perfect example of what it is and what we need to do to walk on the path of life. Okay? So, how is it? How can that be? Next time, <laughs> next probably a couple times in reality, um, we're going to try and figure this out, how we can reconcile that, every, that the kingdom of both present and future and like I said, and I can't emphasize enough because everything hinges on our ability to do that. Everything in terms of understanding the New Testament and who we are as New Covenant believers. It's absolutely essential to understanding Jesus that we can put that into some kind of tension and hold together in some way. Talking about the fact that it's future and present. How do we hold that together in tension? And like I said, the whole New Testament is finally predicated on our understanding that and, and I'm, I believe we're going to hopefully be able to work that out in the next few times because it's so important. Now, I'm going to end on this scripture here because I love this scripture. It's, 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 it's like this idea of present future. How many of you have heard this term, already not yet? Yeah, come on. This understanding revolutionized John Wimber. Completely. He took this and went with it. I'm talking about in his early ministry, before he was John Wimber. You know what I'm saying? If you listen to any of his messages about signs and wonders and miracles, he always, I don't want to say always, but he starts off with this. George W. Ladd's book on the kingdom of God, already not yet, eschatology. And look at what happened with the vineyard. In fact, we are... Uh, he's our spiritual grandfather, so to speak, because we were part of the vineyard for a while, and then now we're catch the fire on, on our own. But uh, John Arnett was super impacted by John Wimber. In fact, the fourth value, you guys remember from the summer, what is it? E. Ex okay, it depends what website you read. Extending the kingdom by empowering in the spirit and in, and in the anointing and equipping the saints. If you look at PIH's website, extending the kingdom. Where does that come from? If you read the history of our movement, it talks about that from here to the nation's book. And just ask John. He was so impacted by the vineyard and John Wimber's message of the kingdom. That's why it's a huge value of ours. And also the father heart of God. 
And then Carol, intimacy and uh, inner healing. But anyway, all that to say, understanding this is going to help us navigate as Christians and how we're supposed to live as kingdom people now in terms of spreading the kingdom, understanding the kingdom, um, ethics, everything is an understanding of this, who we are. But John, uh, you can meditate on this for the next couple weeks until I preach next because Barry's here next. And Anyway, 1 John 3, 2, it says it exactly, this one verse says it all. Beloved, now, already, now we're children of God. Look at this though. And it is, has not yet, talking about already, not yet, not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he's revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You see that? Already, not yet. Present, future. And that's the tension we have to deal with, and it's going to really help, like I said, in our understanding of who we are as God's eschatological people. <laughs> Living in the present evil age. Okay, and I'll end there. Pause. Till next time. But why, <laughs> why don't we pray? Father, I just thank you so much for your goodness and your faithfulness. And I just thank you so much for the kingdom of God. I ask God for direct revelation by your spirit so that we would understand what it means, not only the kingdom of God, but what we're supposed to do as Christians in light of the fact that the kingdom of God is already not yet. I ask you, Father, that you give us that spirit of revelation and that this would... This would impact our lives to such to, that we would all have even more international impact than John Wimber <laughs> from this message. Every single one of us would have international healing ministries uh, and all the amazing fruit that comes from the revelation of who we are as your eschatological people living in the present age. Your kingdom come. And your will be done in our lives and on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, I just ask, as Jesus said in, in Matthew 6, that we would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, and that all everything else will be added unto us as we do. So we're here in this series seeking your kingdom and what it means. And so, God, we just ask for that fresh revelation of who you are. And what it means that your time, you're the time of your rule has come and is at hand in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right.